Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Universe Within Podcast. On this episode, I spoke with um, Rosa Vasquez Espinosa, and uh, Rosa is a chemical biologist. Uh, she's also a National Geographic Explorer, and she's been doing some really interesting work in the Peruvian Amazon, um, outside of Pucallpa, which is one of the big jungle cities in the Amazon. Uh, there's a, a very fascinating uh, river that's uh, often referred to as the Boiling River, and um, it, it's quite unique. Uh, for a long time, uh, scientists weren't sure where the heat was coming from, and so she's been doing some really interesting work studying the uh, microbial life, the, the, the micro world uh, within that boiling river, within the Amazon. She's also done some really interesting work with uh, some of the indigenous bee species in the Amazon, which are actually a type of stingless bee. Um, so it was a really interesting conversation. She was referred to me by a friend who actually read about her in a National Geographic article, and I thought she'd be a great guest to have uh, come on and speak about the Amazon, about the Boiling River, about some of the ecology, uh, the, the work she's doing. Uh, with microbes that can potentially lead to new medicines. Uh, one of the other things she's doing is uh, hoping certain studies of microbes can help combat climate change. So uh, she's a very fascinating woman. She also studies traditional dance. Um, so it was a pleasure to have her on. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Um, as always, if you're able to support the podcast, Patreon is a really good option. Uh, it's a subscription service for as little as a dollar a month. You can sign up. Uh, you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. Um, and I really like the idea of that idea of reciprocity. So <clears throat> if you feel like you're enjoying these podcasts, learning something from it, uh, then that's a, a really beautiful way to give back. Um, to all of the patrons, to all of the people who support via Patreon, thank you very much for your support. Uh, it's really uh, thanks to you that I'm able to continue to do this show. Um, if you're not able to do that, as always, some of the small things, uh, if you're listening to this or watching this on YouTube, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, that really helps with the algorithms and getting the show out to a bigger audience. And if you're listening to this uh, on one of the major pod uh, podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, following or subscribing to the show, leaving a starred rating, and with Apple Podcasts, leaving a short review, that's a really big help. So uh, I think that's it. When this show is released, it's probably going to be early October. Myself and my uh, colleague Marav Artsy are running plant dietas in the Sacred Valley of Peru. Uh, I think we'll probably still have uh, one dieta left when this is released. So if that's something that's interesting uh, to you, it's a really beautiful opportunity to experience the world of plant medicines, as we alluded to a little bit in this podcast, uh, going deeply into kind of this unseen world uh, where there's a tremendous amount to teach. So uh, if you'd like more information about that, you can check out my website at nicotianarustica.org and also Marav's site at tobaccodiets.com, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So I think that's it, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Rosa. Running out from the maze, running out from the maze. 
Thank you very much, Rosa, for coming on. Um, as uh, we were talking a little bit before we started, a, a good friend of mine forwarded me an article from National Geographic, and um, it's a, it's an interesting uh, organization because I, I grew up in Washington D.C. and I, I used mm. to go to the, the mall and uh, all the museums. And my my father had a subscription to National Geographic, so it was always something that was very close to me. So. Um, Oh, and and awesome. then it was really interesting seeing the article about your work and uh, the, the Boiling River near Pucallpa in, in the Peruvian Amazon. So, yeah, I thought you'd be a great guest. So maybe to start, you could just introduce yourself to the audience, who you are, where you're from, and, and uh, what is the work that you're doing? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I really appreciate seeing the, the work that you're doing, highlighting other voices out there. I am such a believer. I try to do that myself with my own work and platforms. So thank you for that. Um, so my name is Rosa Vasquez Espinosa. I'm from Peru. And I'm a doctor in chemical biology, and I explore the things people typically ignore uh, around us, specifically in the Amazon rainforest. I study what I call, like to call the micro world, all the way from microbes that we cannot see with our naked eyes and their role in the ecosystem and in medicine um, and in help us fight climate change, as well as smaller animals like stingless bees. Um, and I do it through scientific research, but I also do it through storytelling in, in a way to highlight stories that perhaps don't typically make the media and to really give another face to the Amazon. I will offer people to, to think of the Amazon as not just a place with showers and like anacondas and like what we've seen in the movies and documentaries uh, most of the time uh, up until recently. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's what I do. So um, if people aren't familiar, how would you describe a, a chemical biologist? What is, what is their role or function? Um, it's, a very, it's, a, it's very fluid. It really depends. So like it's, a, it's a field that started, I would say, maybe in the last 20 years or so with the idea to give people the flexibility to have very interdisciplinary research. So, you know, the all thought of like a biologist just study plants and animals or the idea of a chemist just being in the lab creating new molecules. The idea with chemical biology was really to approach science in a more natural way, like how do you understand an ecosystem outside of you, not just by studying one angle, but you need really to bring in different expertise and different points of view for you to actually have practical impact in the area that you are studying. And so that's kind of what chemical biology tries to do. And what it allowed me to do was really be trained during the entire time I was at the university from a strong like genetic and chemical and biological perspective, but how to apply that, that those tools, techniques, theories, thinking to new spaces that perhaps haven't been thought about uh, in this specific way and how by doing so we can, we are able to advance science, not just in the area, but actually use it in a way that we can protect fragile ecosystems like the Amazon rainforest. Mm. And what made you get interested in that? Was that an interest as a child or it was something that <clears throat> you had like a eureka moment and you decided <laughs> biology is my path? 
A bit, a bit of both, to be honest. I love the flexibility that it provided. But uh, I mean, I, I grew up in, in Peru. I, I was raised in the city in Lima, but my family is from the Andes and I have family from the Amazon as well. So I would spend most of my summers just all over Peru, really, uh, spending some time, you know, in, in Ancash or spending some time in, in the in Iquitos, Pucallpa. And so all of these experiences, along with the, the, the fact that my grandma, when she, they moved from Ancash from the Andes to Lima, she used to rely a lot on traditional medicine, especially plants. They didn't really have access, like typical access to Western medicine back then. I think they had maybe like a doctor come by once a month. And so for the rest of the time, she just took it upon herself to learn, learn from the elderly what kind of plants to use, the type of proven traditional medicine and traditional medicine that we have around the world, really. And she took that and basically turned our, our garden in the city uh, into like a small natural pharmacy. And so she never had a formal science or doctoral training. She actually never got the chance to go to school, but she knew so much. And I would spend a lot of time with her growing up. And so I was just inherently surrounded by that. For me, it was just such a normal part of like my education at home per se, um, and it, it was a combination of reading about like cool science things or my dad would tell me stories about like genetic engineering and people doing these crazy things to like improve, you know, things for nature, but also for people. And I just thought it was fascinating and I wanted to understand how is it possible that like a plant or nature or eventually I learned the microbes that live within the plants or animals can give us medicines. I thought that that concept was insane. And I was like well, then why are we doing more? Like, can we use that to help protect it back? It feels like we're just taking advantage. And so I had a, the opportunity to, during undergrad to do a, a summer internship in China, in Beijing, in a traditional Chinese medicine hospital. And that experience totally blew my mind. I already was super interested in science, but I think that was one of the experiences that really kind of put things into perspective because I thought that at least that hospital and from my understanding the, the health system over there, over time has found a way to really uh, make the traditional as well as Western medicine cohabit together in a way that they complement each other and without taking one down or not, because they have a lot of scientific research done on the traditional medicines. And I realized that that was something we didn't really have that strongly in Peru yet, still so much to do. Um, and I've been in love with the Amazon since forever. And I just thought, well, like, I mean, it sounds like nobody's doing, there's some work that needs to be done here. And I feel like there was a, a missing key in all of our efforts to protect the jungle. And all of a sudden, when you realize that people have disregarded or not really considered microbes in their climate change models or in like strategies to preserve fragile areas like the jungle, it all makes sense. And so... That's what we're trying to do, like what I'm trying to do with my work, just place focus on those areas to hopefully invite more people to do that kind of work as well. That's interesting. So a, a lot of the interest when you were young was actually the, the medicinal aspect of, of plants and systems of medicine, like traditional Chinese medicine. And that, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I think that and seeing the movies of, you know, like the planet coming to an end because we didn't take care of like climate change, that definitely was a big part. And for me, I just took it as such a personal thing, like, but we are getting this from this. Why can't we do something? And I really did. I would used to get mad or like just frustrated. Uh, and so my way of trying to, you know, 
contribute to that. It's like, well, if we can just show things in a different way, it can impact. Like, it can definitely make a change. You never know who's listening. You never know who can do something more. Um, and I'm just a firm believer that we can make change happen within our time frame and not like, you know, for a hundred years from now necessarily. And so what was the interest that, um, that led you into the, 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 the micro world, the microbial world? Because I, I think that's something, especially now, at least within the micro kind of like the micro vision, like the human vision, it's something mm -hmm. that seems like in mainstream science or even just mainstream thought is something that's become a lot more common that the microbes within our system play a huge role in, in our health and our, our, our nervous system, our, our, uh, immunological system. And, and I think these are things that even 20 years ago weren't really thought of that much. Yes. Um, and, and, but it still seems like maybe on a more macro level, like the, the microbes not within us, but without, it still seems like a field that's not very well studied or talked about. So what was it that got you interested in that? You're absolutely right. Um, I think it was when I learned how many of the medicines that we have nowadays in the market, like in the pharmacy, that originally were discovered because they were found in plants, trees, branches. Um, a lot of them actually are produced by the microbes that live on the surface or on the roots of these plants or animals, etc. wherever that is. A lot of them even come from sediments. But the concept on that, what originally drug my, like, took my attention is one, well, microbes are tiny. I have never even seen one when I was a kid. And I was like, how, how can they do that? I just thought it was like such an insane, you know, like the way we look at like the sky and then we see all these stars and then like you try to imagine what that actually like means in magnitude and what they contain. And it almost felt like the same, but looking at like the tinier level. So that just fascinated me on its own. But then learning that pharmaceutical companies back in the day used to go with like big bags and like literally chop down a bunch of trees or leaves, etc., to be able to access that medicine, having a very negative impact on the environment that perhaps at that point, nobody really, you know, considered. Um, um, but instead with the microbes, you don't need to do that. You just need a little swap. You don't even need to take the plant out of its ecosystem. Because now over time we have the tools to take a little swap, being able to get that microbe and make multiple copies of it. So you have a whole like natural machinery in your lab space to make the same molecule, the same quality, et cetera, without having to cut down all these trees. So on that aspect, I thought that that was fascinating. And then the more I, I got into that area, I learned, and, and you're right, that is not talked about enough how virtually all aspects of our lives, although we're not aware of it, are to some extent impacted by microbes. You may not know, for example, that some of the yogurts that you're eating, those factories are be their pipes are being cleaned by extreme force of microbes that make the process much, you know, lower, like cost effective and much healthier to clean it. You may not know that some of the vegan food that they sell out there now have deriva like derivatives from microbes to be able to get like the red color in like vegan meat, for example, or like some of the cosmetics that we use. Every virtual like virtually every part of our life to some extent are influenced by that because of their ability for us to manipulate them in, in ways that can serve us without harming the environment. Um, and the aspect that we have so many, like the microbes inside of us can actually have an impact in how we even feel sometimes, have impact on diseases like even Parkinson or et cetera, things that have remained a big question mark for so long that shows us exactly how you just said and 
It's the fact that we haven't looked at it yet. Even, you know, back in the 40s, people didn't think microbes could exist in hot environments, like extreme hot environments or acidic environments like Yellowstone boiling waters until somebody asked the question. And I'm hoping that with chemical biology, we can encourage more of that. It's start to like just question every part of the that has been established by now in a way that benefits the way that we protect nature and the way that we try to advance um, medicine and humanity as well. Yeah. You, you said your, your grandmother used to have like a, a plant or an herbal garden. Do you, do you remember the, the kinds Still of does. things she was uh, great? Yeah. Do you remember the kinds of things she was working with or, or treating or like what her connection with that was? Um, a bit of everything. So she, she still has it and I can send you photos. It's a, it's not a giant space, but it's packed. <laughs> you can barely walk by there and she has like labels for everything. Um, she used to access it. So my, uh, one of my uncles, he had, he suffered a lot of health accidents growing up and they, that already happened when they were in their small town. So she needed to find ways to like aid his pain or even help with like the skin because he really, he's still like in bed. And so like that comes with a lot of like, um, you know, complications and, and ways that wouldn't necessarily be relying always on having to buy medicines because they couldn't at the time, you know, um, not when they were still living there and they, and they didn't really had enough like income to, to make that happen. And so like when they moved to the city and the situation improved, she still rely on that because he was so, it was so beneficial for my uncle at that point. And then still actually to this day, uh, whether it's to make teas, to like help with the digestion, because if you're thinking of somebody that is just in bed the whole time, you need to think about so many other aspects that people often don't think about. And so she relied, you know, like on seeds that she can like smash together and like help with like these other things or like these other kind of leaves. And then you just take like the kind of like the like for example like if you take aloe vera like the plant sabila that we call it and you take all like the food and then you just let the the you know the rest of the leaves sorry i'm forgetting the name but you let it dry and then if you like let it kind of like sit on smoke then you have a lot of more like the active chemicals and then you can put it like around someone's leg and bring down inflammation these type of things that perhaps she couldn't give a scientific explanation for but empirically she knew they worked or at least that's how they felt and um so yeah, up to this day, like she always said, like, well, you go and become a doctor and tell me how this works, but I'll just continue like doing it. Um, and yeah, that's, I, I always bring her up because that's um, definitely one of the biggest reasons why it just, it always fascinated me. So you grew up in the Andes and then Lima and you, you said you also spent time in the Amazon or what was it that, yeah. that made you so fascinated with the Amazon? Because for a lot of people who, who may not know, I mean, in Peru's a really unique country in that you have like the coastline and then it goes up to the Andes and then it drops down to the Amazonian basin. And it's almost yeah. like two worlds. I mean, the difference between the <laughs> yes. Amazon, it's like, uh, it's like two different universes. Yeah. So, um, I know. you know, the Amazon is a very particular environment and, and it's, um, it's also very inaccessible uh, for a lot of people. I mean, it's quite difficult to get into. I mean, unless you fly or you take a really long boat ride, it's, um, right. I think a lot of people may not realize that, like it's, you know, it's quite a, a journey. It's become much easier yeah. now, especially with planes. But um, so was that something your family, they, they, they explored or they took vacations there or it was something you read about in books or what, um, what was we that? Used, 
We used to go visit my family um, in different areas and just spend, you know, like extended time there or spend like summers and we would just go see the animals and just be around. Like at that point, the different areas in Pucallpa and Iquitos that perhaps now, as you say, are more accessible, quote unquote, because there's more roads. And unfortunately, because of deforestation, it was much less, you know, almost 30 years ago. Um, and so... We were just there sometimes in like the small huts or like in the small houses, depending who were, we were visiting, especially in Pucallpa. That was like the, one of the places we used to go back to the most. We would be down the Amazonian River super often in like the long boat rides. And for us, we were kids and we were with like my cousins that I only, you know, get to see every so often. So it was always just like so fun for me. That was like, oh, that was it's the equivalent of, you know, people taking, like, their kids to, like, Disney World. Like, I was like, oh, that's perfect. Like, that was our time. Like, we got to play and just, you know, unrestricted playtime uh, in a way. And I think I never really valued that as as much as I did when I became a teenager. Um, and I started to go back again, not just to visit family, but through my high school. And the high school had a program to go to a lower part, like in Madre de Dios, and do some like research work over there to like learn in biology, geography, etc. And I think that was the first time I approached the jungle from that scientific perspective. For me, the scientific like inquiry and curiosity was more like at home and, you know, with with my grandma. But I never really had thought about like going into one of these spaces that for me was just natural and think about it that way. Um, and so when we did that, it, it was like a lot of like windows all of a sudden starting to open. And there was this one particular experience that I do go back to often because I think it helps highlight how experiences we have or we provide others at an early age or even later on can make such a big difference out of that you know we, we we spend extended time doing that scientific work over there but then one during one of those days um the school had planned for us to camp in the middle of the jungle so not in like the lodge where we were staying which was already you know like small and humble but like literally just flat out camp in the middle there was just like a small area that was cleared um but you were in the middle of everything we had to hike three hours to even get there and then it was close to the river and you had to hike the three hours to go back um and then we just basically put up tents and that was the first time i like camped out basically under the stars in the middle of the jungle and like whatever you know what all of that entails like i guess a lot of people could have been scared for us it was just like fun and I, there was something about that night that it felt like as if I was closer to everything, although I had been there growing up already. I just, it was the experience of spending a few days thinking about like, oh, okay, I'm going to start to ask these scientific questions and try to like solve them by looking at the natural space that I have around them. And then all of a sudden I'm like actually immersed in that even more than I already was. And then at that point, actually, I was preparing to study to become an astronaut. Like I had prepared all my classes for physics and et cetera. But then all of a sudden I was like, well, I wonder, I was reading about microbes. What do we know about Amazonian microbes? And then I went back home and I could barely find anything at that time. Like, especially in the Amazon, barely anything, maybe like one or two things in English. And that was it. And they were not accessible, you know, like journals that you cannot download the paper because you need to like pay for it. And I was like, well, that's wild. And then all of a sudden me like wanted to like do all this space exploration. I was like, well, let me start here. Like, there's nothing really much known here yet. Let me, like, postpone that for a while and let me maybe just take a look at this. And that's kind of, like, how everything really unraveled. And then at that point, I think I was 14 or 15, 
I told my mom, I, I, I need to know what's happening. Like maybe there's, maybe the things are not on the internet and maybe people are doing things and we just need to find out. I just want to know like what people are studying, what are they doing? How are they doing it? What do they know? What do they don't know? I just became obsessed. And so I told my mom, how about we just go, you know, every time we get a chance to travel, we'll just go from north to south to the jungle. Let's just visit all the universities. Let's just visit all the places. Let's just see what people are doing. And my mom was like, I mean, okay, I'll have to come with you because you cannot go alone. And I was like, okay, it's fine. And I just remember going, we started up north. So we started in Iquitos and we started at the Institute of Investigation, YAP, the Institute of Investigation in the Peruvian Amazon. I was, yeah, I think it was towards the end of my 15th uh, year. Um, and then we went there and then my mom is like, okay, what do you want to do now? And I said, I don't know. I just want to talk with people. I just want to find out what research they're doing. What do they know? And she said, okay, well, I'm going to wait here, but you go and like knock and just say you are a student and that you're interested. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I was just terrified. And then I literally just did that. I just knocked on a few offices. People were like, and people were lovely. Like they were just like, oh, okay. Like you're just curious. Okay. Well, and then they sat down with me. We talked about it. And one of those visits actually led to me collaborating with Cesar Delgado that we took the photos for the Nagio magazine now. And we've still been collaborating for over 10 years now. And we have a few publications together. And, and he really became my, my, trusted local collaborator for all of the work that we're doing. Um, and we continue that all the way to the South every year uh, and up until the pandemic, really, that was the first time I had to like not be able to, to go for, for a few years because I was completing the, the PhD here and I couldn't leave and everything was closed. Um, but yeah, <laughs> sorry, that was a super long answer. <laughs> no, that was great. So when you were younger, were you familiar with the, the Boiling River? Because that, that's been a place where you've been concentrating a lot of your work now. Was, was that something you were familiar with or interested in? Um, I wasn't familiar with it. And, and in, in reality, if you go around the jungle, many places, many people are going to tell you, no, there's no boiling river. Some other people may tell you like, oh, there's actually a few other boiling like hot springs here and there. Um, it was when I, when I saw Andres Russo's TED Talk that he was talking about this boiling river. I don't know if you've seen it. And if not, I'll, I highly recommend it. Um, he's uh, a Peruvian geologist that kind of like brought it to a more of like a world platform, the Boiling River, in the one that is in Pucallpa, Huanuco. Um, and at that point, I already knew I wanted to do something during my PhD with the Amazon. I just didn't know exactly what, where, or where to start. And I remember seeing that and I was like, well, that's fascinating. And the idea at that point that came to my mind was like, if we can do some of this work at like studying the genetics and the chemistry and like basically creating a baseline, like let's just first start this base work in a space like that, that is so even more inaccessible, even more of an extreme environment, um, then we really are proving the point that we can do it anywhere else in the jungle. And so one thing led to the other. My, my mentor at the time, Professor Dr. David Sherman at the University of Michigan, he already had a longstanding collaboration with the University of Agraria in Lima and the University of Agraria professor, uh, Dr. Marcel, at the time, he unfortunately is not with us anymore, he already had established a relationship with Andres to hopefully at some point study the micro world in the Bowling River, but they really had not found someone to do that yet. And so all of those things happened to align at the same time. And my professor said, hey, I'm in touch with this person. Let's just talk. And then I brought to Andres the idea that I said, 
this is what I've been meaning to do. I think this would be a great space. Like maybe we can all collaborate. Um, and that's how we started the, the micro Amazon project. And I applied to a, a Nagia grant. I luckily got it. And we've been working on that space since 2019 and currently going full on speed to hopefully try to publish our, 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 our first scientific publication for revision by the end of this year. And and what is it about the boiling river that you find interesting, or, or what is the, the the premise of the the research you're doing? Well, we want to create the first microbial map of the area, and I would dare to say the first microbial map of the Amazon, at least the Peruvian Amazon. Um, the idea is to do like to get to all this, the things we've been talking about, like the potential awesome benefits that studying microbes have, whether it's medicinal, biotechnological, uh, even being able to use them positively to control uh, like fight climate change. All of these things require us to have an initial knowledge of what's in there present at the micro level and elucidate you know, their genetics, how does this look like, their chemical potential, what kind of like molecules they could be making, just having an initial baseline as, as to what's there. And that's what I'm calling a map, because that's how kind of like I try to envision the same way that you have like Google Maps and you can see like the different buildings. You f before you even do a modification on those buildings, you need to know what's there. So that's kind of what we we're trying to create the first microbial map where we have gone along the river, collected samples, and we did all of these through Peruvian perm like permits from the Peruvian government to do it in the most ethical way and being able to characterize the type of microbes that exist in the hottest parts of the river as well as in the coolest parts of the river. What do these microbes could mean to the ecosystem, to the evolution of life in the area, um, and then taking it a step farther and being able to report the full genomic composition of some of these microbes and the kind of molecules they could be making, which can give us an indication, could they have potential to perhaps make new molecules with the idea that uh, extreme environment where they need to be fighting all the time for their survival, like a boiling river, would activate certain parts of the genome that wouldn't in other areas to be able to survive in these spaces and perhaps being able to provide us tools to then help the jungle back. An idea, perhaps by studying this type of, you know, increased temperature micro world, we can find new tools to help with reforestation or like desertification of soils, which is happening in the jungle right now with fires, increased temperatures, the, the, the lack of water in some areas. Um, and that's just one of the, of the things that we hope to not necessarily you know, address it specifically with this word, but that we can open that space that hasn't been open and show the peop to people like this is one doable, two, we sh like there is potential, there should be more work here and perhaps inspire policy as well that would help protect areas that are in danger to illegal activities and et cetera, like the Bowling River as well. And, and what does that research look like? Like you're, you're going in alone or you're going in with a team of other scientists, of local guides. How do you, how do you collect that? How do you analyze it? What is, what does that process look like? It's a big effort. I'll say that it's between University of Michigan, between the Bowling River Project Organization and between Agraria La Molina. So the first phase of the project, which happened right before COVID, luckily, so we managed to get that done, was obtaining the permits from the Peruvian government, which took a long time, actually. And it was a, a multi-team multi like effort because there was no frame, legal framework to study microbes in Peru. And so 
with that, we've basically been able to kind of like move the needle on that aspect, which makes me really excited. So hopefully that's going to be easier for other people wanting to do that kind of work. Um, because before the permits were associated with like microbes that are necessarily associated with plants or animals. For us, we wanted to look at the microbes that live in water, in the sediments and in the algae. So it's not necessarily associated to plants or animals. Um, so the first phase was being in the field, taking samples all around the, 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 the river, um, sediment samples, water samples, algae samples, as well as taking different um, physical chemical parameter measurements in the field, like temperature, um, pH, like the acidity levels, etc. cetera. Uh, and then us taking all of that back to the lab where we're doing work in Agraria as well, work in the University of Michigan, our collaborators from Agraria, the lab of Dr. Grady and the PhD student Felipe Wanachin that are, have been leading those efforts and on our end as well. So it literally means you take some dirt from like the soil and then you, one of the things we've been doing is you take that dirt and you directly isolate all of the genomic information that is in that. So you process that sediment through like some kits and some machines that we have. And then you end up with like a drop of water, <laughs> like teeny tiny amount. That is basically all of the genetic information we've been able to pull out from there. And then from there, we like uh, process that in a way that we can actually obtain like the readings, which is, which you get in like, uh, I don't want to say a word document because there's a few other formats for that, but almost as if you were just getting like a long, very long document, but with four letters only and combinations of those four letters, which basically make up the DNA of those organisms. So then with that, we can process it through. At that point, it's basically just bioinformatics, different softwares to try to compare it to like other hot springs around the world. How does that look like or what information can we actually gather from it that is useful for us and what we want to do? Another thing that we're also doing is taking that sediment, that same sediment and putting it in like what we call an agar plate, which is kind of like a gelatin type of food that microbes like. And then we literally just mix that sediment with like sterile water and then put it on top of this agar and then see what microbes like it enough to actually grow there. And we do, of course, all of these in like safe, safety with like follow, following safety protocols in the lab. But then once we have microbes that have grown, we can work with one microbe at a time instead of like the X amount, like hundreds, if not thousands of microbes that can live in a bit of sediment at any given time. And then from there, we can get more information, not, not just on the genetic side, but actually see what kind of like molecules could be living here. So we take what looks like a little piece of goo that is a microbe, grow it in like a one liter type of liquid food that they like, and then from there collect all of those cells and then process it to be able to get that chemical information. And then at that point on, then also by informatics to gather it all together. When you started that, I, I, I imagine some people must have thought you were crazy to believe that there actually could be microbes boiling <laughs> river because that seems to go counterintuitive to a lot of thought that when when a water reaches a certain temperature that nothing can survive i mean <clears throat> that's kind of even the reason like why most people if they are out in the wild they'll, they'll boil water with the idea of purifying the water because it would kill any microbial life um so w was that kind of were you expecting to find life in, in the water there or you, you had some intuitive sense that there was something there? Because I, I, I imagine there, there would have been a lot of resistance to that idea in the beginning. Um, yes and no. So 
In the 60s, 50s or 60s, uh, when there were scientists that would go around Yellowstone in the U.S. and the boiling and acidic waters, they used to say, well, we know that the limits of life are X, Y, and Z. We know that nothing can survive below these temperatures or below this acidic, acidic, um, acidic level, sorry, um, until this one scientist said, but I've seen like this kind of like pink goo grow in these waters. Maybe that is, you know, something. And then other people say like, no, that's just like minerals that have kind of like melted, etc. And then he took the sample and then did that work. And because of the extreme microbes that he was able to find in that pink goo, we now have PCR like tests for COVID. Um, so that was a major discovery that happened thanks to that question. So a lot of, like some people, yeah, most of people were like, well, but no, we use that water to like, you know, clean things out or to like make things sterile. And if, and we know that if small mammals fall into the Bolin River in Peru, they will burn immediately from inside out. Like they won't survive. They will get immediate like third degree burns in just within seconds. And if you stay any longer there, it's, you know, it's a, it's a done deal. Um, but when I had visited before even actually getting to me with Andres, I got to visit one time with my mom and we got to just walk around. And I noticed that even in the hottest spots where you see, where it's so hot that you see the water boiling and bubbling and like you see the vapor just coming so strongly from you, there were still some like fades of color, like shades of color, like sticking to the rocks or some like kind of goo of different colors all around. So I was like, there's definitely things living here, living like so much like living so comfortably there that they are making such a big community that you can see it visually like I could see the colors maybe like very faint into like the person that is not used to seeing things this way it would be nothing but then to me it just told me like there's there's definitely something there whether what is it or maybe just on this one spot I don't know but then the idea that yeah, the idea that there's so many that I can see with my naked eye I was like it must be all over we just nobody has just really looked at it yet Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, <laughs> th have you heard, uh, uh, and I, I could be pronouncing it wrong, but I think it's called the, the tardigrade. I think that was one of the, mm -hmm. the microbes they found. And it was really fascinating because they also realized it could live like in these volcanic environments. And, and they even surmised that it could live in space, Yes, which I always found really fascinating because it, it it's almost like there's this inadvertent, like, like even for example, when we put a satellite into, into orbit, there's a likelihood that something like that could be on there. Some microbe like a tardigrade that actually has the potentiality to live in space, which as you said, maybe before the 1950s wouldn't have been thought to be possible, but now that seems like a reality. So it does seem like there's this whole world opening up and, and even this idea of like alien life. I mean, that, if that goes in space, all of a sudden, like that is alien life. Like, and, and in this way, we, I think we tend to think of life in things that look like us. We, we, maybe in more scientific terms, we anthropomorphize something and we expect, uh, you know, um, foreign life or, or, or life, alien life, other types of life to somehow resemble something that we can kind of wrap our heads around. But when you think about something like a tardigrade, I mean, it, it's so foreign to us, this, this microbe. I mean, when you really look at it, it looks almost like a, a worm, but I mean, it's, you know, tiny, tiny, <laughs> <They're> tiny. <kid. laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess, I guess the question is, I think a lot of people, because it is something that's, that's like out of sight, out of mind in a way, it, it, it seems like the, 
it's difficult to imagine the potentiality of that. But you 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 mentioned some of the the the. Um, the work that you were hoping to do with your your study, um, one was potentially uh, finding new medicines, and, and two was uh, helping with climate change. What are what are the potentialities of, of microbes with with new medicine? Is is there like any example you can point to, or, or any like potentiality you can see in the future of of where that could actually lead to a breakthrough in medicine? Because again, it, it yeah. does seem like like we were talking about earlier with all of this new research going into how important the microbiome is and, and, and how many actually diseases and, and, and things that can contribute to it. It seems like there's like, there's a whole field that's waiting to be yeah. explored with that. Yeah. target degrades are super cool. Yeah. They're like, yeah. Uh, I want to say the only microscopic animal that we know of, but unless there, you know, maybe there's something that was discovered in the last few months that I'm not aware of. Um, and uh, maybe that is not the only one. We just haven't looked like everywhere. Um, I do think we tend to not think of life as things that we cannot see with our naked eyes. And it makes sense. It's just much easier to connect with things that we can see because then you think it's real, right? Um, I totally understand. And I think that that's the main reason as to what microbes have been out of conversations in the, in our day to day lives for most people that are not like in the super involved scientific field that some of us are. Uh, and the reason why we haven't considered them when we talk about conservation and protection of our planet, because call it whatever it is, it's just hard to connect with something like that. And so part of what we want to do in addition to the scientific research is bring that closer to us. And that's why I thought of the idea of like a map where you can actually see things and, you know, being able to record microscopic videos. And there's other people that are doing a spectacular work with this as well to try to bring it closer and make it like tangible, you know, so that you can actually feel it almost like as if you are touching it. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, wow, there is actually a whole like, you know, Jurassic Park mini world, just like hiding in your backyard that you just don't happen to see. But like, if you were to get at that same level, all of a sudden, it's like a, literally a whole other new universe. There are many examples already of medicines that have been discovered for microbes. So like the very famous example is penicillin that became such a life-saving antibiotic back in the day that was discovered thanks to mold that ended up growing in these like gelatin-like plates where we typically grow bacteria and it just happened to be a mold that took over and the scientists at the time realized like oh maybe there is some sort of medicine here and long story short over a lot of period of, of over a lot of work they realized it was this molecule called penicillin that even even nowadays to some extent in some places it's used there is erythromycin which is another famous antibiotic as well that was originated from a microbe that lives in soil literally um, actually, quote parenthesis, fun fact, when you go outside and, you know, it rains and then if you happen to be in a field where there's a lot of soil, you have like that smell from like the soil after a rainy day. That's actually microbes that they just release more of this scent whenever there's like there's rain on the soil is specifically from streptomyces microbes that happen to be some of the largest producers of medicines, antibiotic, anti-cancer, etc. There's a few um, anti-diabetic and anti-cancer drugs, anti-tumor cancer drugs right now in the market also obtained from microbes. I'm, I'm super bad with names, but I could send you a list. There is basically one third of, micro of medicines out there approved by the FDA that are currently in our pharmacies 
come or are inspired by natural sources. Most of them are plants and microbes, and then now some of them also by animals. Um, so the, the concept is not necessarily new, but back in like the 80s, people stopped looking at nature to access new medicines because it was too time consuming or it was hard to access some spaces or they were finding the same molecules over and over. So their, their rediscovery rates, which had a, you know hampered the cost and everything was too high. And so people kind of like switch to just looking at synthetic things that we can make in the lab that we can predict with softwares and just make completely new molecules that are not known to nature. There is kind of like a shift trying to go back because there's so, so many diseases right now, like an, uh, antibiotic drug resistant, you know, bugs that are coming out there that we don't have the medicine for. Right now, they say cancer is still the number one killer. By 2050, the predictions are not being able to fight and like infections in your body with the current antibiotics that we have will be the number one killer because of the rate that these things are increasing, the few money that is going into trying to solve these problems right now from pharmacy um, and the fact that we are not really talking about it that much. The idea of looking at very diverse biodiverse spaces in our planet to look at the microbes that could live there or that could live in extreme environments is the idea to try to access quote unquote new chemistry chemistry that perhaps we haven't seen yet by just studying microbes from like similar environments but the idea is to go like to explore a place that it's just inputting these such big stressors, whether it's temperature, pressure, et cetera, into these organisms that different parts of their genome get activated. Like if it's like light switch and all of a sudden when those light switches get activated, then their whole system can actually produce molecules that we haven't seen yet, that perhaps by having a whole new chemical structure, they could have a completely new way of attacking certain bugs and being able to become life-saving medicines. That's kind of like the idea of, of studying microbes in these remote spaces that a few other groups are trying to do like that. Uh, but I think we need more of that in the Amazon and it's just been hard for a thousand of reasons. And hopefully it's time to change that. You, you also mentioned this idea of the potentiality of, of microbes to, to combat uh, climate change. Um, I know, like for example, they've they've recently found uh, mycelium in certain mushrooms that have the ability mm -hmm. to degrade plastic. And mm -hmm. what um, what do you think that potentiality is? Like, how how would microbes help humans to 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 combat that climate change or, or to bring nature into more of a balance that's conducive to humanity? So it is shocking whenever I say this, even to me, every time I say it is. A lot of the statistical models that have been used so far to predict how climate change is going to be impacting our oceans, our lands, our forests, our people have not included uh, the like the cycles that microbes go in, like intaking some greenhouse gases or producing some like some of these toxic gases as well. And so when you realize that for a lot of these models, I don't want to say all because I don't know them all. So maybe there's a few that do, but a lot of them do not include I want to say 50%, if not more, of the life that we have in a specific area, it's shocking. Then all of a sudden, to me, it just makes sense why we have failed in a way. Because not only have we not been able to predict correctly, because things have gotten so much worse, so much faster than we expected. And it's also because of, you know, things just getting worse and people not really 
like taking action to some extent, but not as much as we needed. But I think perhaps, and I don't know if that would have been true or not, perhaps we'd have been, we would have been able to predict things a little bit more accurately and realize how much in a, in a, we were in a much worse situation already years ago than where we thought we were by being able to look at integrating microbes into these systems. So the idea is, for example, when we talk about carbon storage in the Amazon, I don't think many people have considered that a lot of the microscopic algae that we have in the waters and in the soils and etc. could be capturing carbon as well or could be contributing to the release of other gases. So when we don't take those things into consideration, we're neglecting such a big part that one could help us understand better, like, are we doing a better job or a worse job? Like, does this thing or does this new strategy or activity, etc., is it improving or decreasing it? We just know it at a very superficial level when it comes to trees. And it is so important to do that. But it is just equally important to look at these micro world and in its influence on the plants and on the animals and on the waters and the pollution and all of that. But to even get to do that, we need to start with a baseline of what's there right now and perhaps encourage people to do it in a yearly level or every time there's an environmental disaster and just do in integrating that into like our ecosystem monitoring and the way we are like planning to to fight climate change in these spaces. So I think that's where microbes could come. The American Society of Microbiology just about a, a month ago released a five-year plan on how to do exactly what I'm talking about, integrated microbes in conversations about climate change. Because for, I don't want to say the very first time, but like the first time that a big organization makes such a strong, bold claim like they have, which I applaud them for it, it's they brought a lot of scientists together to talk about exactly what we're talking about. How is it possible that we have ignored microbes for so long into climate change action? And everybody, you know, was given exactly like a summary of like what I'm telling you about basically right now for a million reasons that has happened. And now how can we change that? And it will take a lot of work and a lot of effort from multiple sources. But it made me so happy to see such a big and established institute like the American Society of Microbiology, one of the leading societies for all micro world out there, realize that, acknowledge that that has been a failure in the system per se, and that we need to take action to do that. So I'm hoping that what we are doing right now with the Amazon will be the first step that we're taking, at least in that boiling river space. I know that there are some other areas in other parts of the Amazon that have started to take that, those first steps, but we need more of that. We need more media on it. We need, and how do we make science cool so that people actually get interested and talk about it, right? You need to, to have some creative storyteller. You need the scientists to, even if they may not want to be trained in storytelling, because you need them to be out there, you know, taking the effort and the time to talk with people and like put those things up front and making it so interesting that young local people want to do it. That's part of like I, what I'm really trying to push. How do you make like, you know, all of these science work out there in the field like really cool? So then it's not just like, oh, that boring thing that nobody wants to get engaged, but we make it into a conversation of our day to day. Do you think... Um... Or maybe what do you think is 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 the role of because I think we often tend to compartmentalize things like we we would look at science and think that it's very different from for example maybe indigenous medicine that they're two different things and yet um, you know using the example of the boiling river like a lot of people knew it was there it was just it wasn't known to people from outside of there or even with microbes I mean that's something that that seems to only been in the last few decades that's really getting exposure. But 
maybe if you were to look at like an indigenous Amazonian point of view, they would say there's these like spirits or these, these, these energies of even something like malaria, like mal aire, like something that travels mm -hmm. through the air that has the ability to affect you. Um, or that maybe one could take plants and be able to communicate with these, you know, spirits mm -hmm. or microbes. And a hundred years ago, most like Western people would have said, well, those people are crazy. Like they're mm -hmm. talking nonsense. They're talking about these things you can't see and they just kind of float around out there and they, they exist, but you can't touch them or see them. But now with more modern instrumentation or instruments, we can see that. We can actually see like, oh, wait, like there is this whole other world there that we didn't even know about that now we actually are able to see because we have instruments to be able to see them. You also mentioned this idea of like storytelling and, and how important that is. And, and that's a real kind of traditional or ancient practice you see all over the world, which is this idea of, of storytelling, of, of relating kind of timeless principles to young people so that they can actually understand who they are, where they come from, why things are so important. Um, like even with this idea of climate change, um, like with the boiling river, like, you know, I think it's, it's really, it's much more difficult to, to exploit something or to pollute something or to, to tear something down if you actually have a relationship to that. Yes. And, and so, you know, if we just look at a tree as a commodity, then it's very easy to, to tear it down. Or if we just look at, at a river as somewhere we can dump things into, it's really easy to pollute it. But if you believe that that river has a spirit, if you believe that it has a place in the universe that's equal to ourselves, there's a natural quality that, that makes one care for something in a, in a much different way. So I know that's kind of a long question, but, but where do you see maybe that balance or, or, or that that symbiosis between maybe a, a more modern scientific approach with tools and instruments while also recognizing kind of that indigenous wisdom that's, that's been there as well. I, I, I love the way you framed the question because that is part of what I think has been missing in a lot of the storytelling that has made it to the world of all the Amazonian forests, that cosmovision, right? The way that people are approaching the, the, the waters, the rivers, the trees, the land, the air in the Amazon is something that I think hasn't been translated properly. And I think this is the feeling from the conversations I've had of a lot of like indigenous communities, that those things haven't perhaps transpassed into the film and TV that has been out there put so far about the Amazon jungle. And I think that's something we need to, we need to work on um, still. And I think everything you just mentioned, it's a very beautiful parallelism to the to micro exploration where people don't don't see it so then they think it's not there but i think in a similar way to what the the traditional indigenous like thinking about nature which i love and i share as well that you know one natural entity whether it's a river or a tree are not just a commodity and they're just not a provider of shelter and food or, or water but instead it's a whole being and a whole protectors of like life around it but i feel like with the type of micro exploration science work that, that we can contribute and others can contribute you add another layer you don't take you don't remove you don't disprove but in, in my opinion the way it should be is that it adds another layer as to like yes and look at all the entire like 
benefits or like things that live beyond what you think lives here looking at the microbes and like perhaps if you knew that the microbes that live in one tree could actually make medicines that could help you know fight diabetes or something all of a sudden you have two layers not just your commodity layer or sorry three layers not your not just your spiritual layer but all of a sudden you have this like medicinal practical like oh wow it could actually impact me or my dad or my mom this type of relationship right that you are building on top of the other things that can also be a relationship building like uh, space perhaps that's what i'm hoping to do with micro exploration to help that bridge and that reconnection for perhaps people you know that don't necessarily believe in the things that we're talking about that water is going to have its own spirit or that trees are going to have their own spirits perhaps they don't believe in that but they can believe in the fact that we can provide scientific evidence that there are these impacts and there are this whole hidden universe that can be impactful to climate to the planet to yourself to our day-to-day activities so then all of a sudden destroying these things it's not just about destroying them but you are destroying all of this potential future for solutions in our planets and i think if we contribute and we add to that to the people that already believe that they should be protected or have this whole entity, you are adding another layer and the people that don't, you're bringing them closer to that type of mentality. So I, I, I think that's what kind of like excites me the more, the most about that kind of work. And then the, some of my dreams for the future would be that this type of scientific work continues to get conducted by locals in collaboration with international entities because we need the access and the technologies that we can access in other spaces. I'm totally aware. Like, I'm Peruvian. I was scientifically trained in the U.S., but my whole family is in Peru, and I was born and raised in Peru. So I see, like, the benefits to both worlds, but I also see what can happen when you have locals who have grown up in the space, who have this commitment to their land, doing their own work, and in, in an ideal world... We would have indigenous leaders and communities that have this practical knowledge from the land be integrated in the scientific studies. I think that's part of what we're trying to do with a new project that I'm working on with Cesar Delgado from YAP and the Stingless Bees and how we don't not just keep it as a separate entity and we try to decentralize science. Science is often put in this high pedestal where only people that are extensively trained in this X amount of institutions can talk about science or can write about science but in reality science is for the people and should also be brought in a way like that connects everyone and that doesn't discard knowledge that exists because cultural knowledge and ethnobotanical knowledge and all of this is just as important as the type of scientific evidence that we can provide with experiments in the laboratory so it would be a, a dream to see that type of engagement where indigenous knowledge and indigenous leaders come and work together with scientists in the field to put out their hypothesis theories, test them out in a team and not just imposing or telling you like what it's, you know, what things are like, um, but actually like a, a full union uh, because I think that's the most responsible way of making science happen and in a way that actually makes a positive change in the spaces that we study. Yeah, you you mentioned the the stingless bees, and I know that's uh, that's also been something you focused on. I think a lot of people maybe don't even realize uh, that, <laughs> that there are stingless bees, and you yeah. you find them in the Amazon. Yeah, I think you find them in other tropical places as well. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the importance of of uh, researching stingless bees? 
So uh, it is shocking that most people don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I think many of us don't realize because all the books that we grew up with have a bee that has a sting, right? The movies, everything. You just grow up being like running away from them because you know they're going to come and sting you. But most tropical spaces do have stingless bees. They're actually much more, uh, yeah, yeah, they're just the native stingless bees. You have them in Africa. You have them in other type of tropical spaces. Uh, I even have found them in the United States, although they're not native here, but it seems like they may have moved. I found them in San Diego, California, in one of the parks over there. Uh, you also have some in the Andes, but in the Amazon, you have so many of them, even just in the Iquitos section, we have about 200 species that have been documented, but the idea is that there may be up to 800 that just haven't been documented. Um, and that's just up in the north. I think it is insane to realize that before the Spanish came to invade South America, indigenous communities already had knowledge on stingless bees and the honey that they produce. And they were already using that honey for medicinal purposes. But over time, because of one commercial agriculture that typically relies on the apis, the stinging bee, the slash like honey bee, which is known as apis mellifera. Uh, you have the, your European or African version. They're all stinging. They are the, the largest producers of honey. So they can produce about 40 kilograms of honey per like beehive. And they have been the most commercialized to whenever you have, you know, commercial agricultural crops happening, you bring those in from outside to help you, you know, continue your crops, pollinating them and making your, yeah, your crops a success. And in a way, this has been happening also in the Amazon and they have been misplacing and displacing, sorry, the native bees that we have because they are, they can be a little bit more aggressive that most of the native bees that we have out there that won't have a sting to defend themselves. They have other mechanisms, but not as direct and aggressive as a sting. Uh, to the point that some indigenous communities we've been in touch with in the, in the southern part of the Peruvian Amazon and the leaders, the elderly, have never seen a stinging bee. So there are some areas that have been so deprived for years now of stingless bees because of this kind of like, you know, snowball effect of like commercial agriculture prioritizing stinging bees because of, you know, um, like profits, reasons, etc. And the impact that that has and a lot of people hasn't haven't really worried about it because why why would one think about bees we know that we need to protect bees to protect the planet and we have a lot of you know initiatives out there to save the bees a hundred percent i think they should continue but there is starting to be research out there although it hasn't really made the medias that native stingless bees are more effective pollinators for native plants in their native ecosystem so then all of the sudden if you think that about displacing them then we are also lowering the pollination of native plants. And so all of a sudden you are having, you know, a decrease on your native flora in different spaces. So it's a, it's a part of the biodiversity on, and on like the, the, the fights that happen in the ecosystem that I don't think have been put a focus on as much as we should have. That's on one aspect. And then the, on the other aspect, the fact that Many communities from a long time ago to now, to this date, rely on these stingless bees to make honey that they use to treat different diseases. And it was largely used for COVID in the northern part of the Peruvian Amazon in Iquitos in combination with other things. But it, there was a, such a big reliance on that. And on the fact that they play such an important 
role in the culture of the families that do keep this peace. Then all of a sudden, the the bee just takes a whole much bigger role than just a pollinator. It becomes a central part of the culture, of the teachings of these communities, and as well as on their medicine, and even nowadays on their profits as well, um, since tourism was shut down for so long. Um, so yeah, stingless bees on their own is fascinating. We're working with Cesar and Yap to, to, we started by basically creating social media campaigns to bring the conversation on that, on that topic, because a lot of people do, didn't even know stingless bees happened. I hope that we continue doing the research that we're doing, studying the, the medicinal benefits of like the honey, but then looking at the microbes inside the bees and trying to understand how can we help them better. Because right now in different parts of the world, and there was a report that came out in the U.S. not just about a month or two ago, that bees are dying. They are like agricultural people are noticing that they're living 50% of the time, like half the time that they should be. And this is impacting crops right now. Perhaps we're not feeling it right away, but it is going to be impacting our food chain. And it is a major thing many people are trying to, like, find do we need to give them better food, like, to the bees? Do we need to understand better what viruses are impacting them? Is it climate change and increased temperatures and humidity? And there's a lack of research. That's why we cannot, like, fully tackle it. So I think there's going to be a lot of focus moving on to that. But I think there should be also strong political resolutions that promote the keeping of native bees in spaces where they happen to naturally be living, like in the Amazon, which we don't have yet. So that's something we are working with a few different teams for next year to hopefully promote those type of resolutions where we try to create natural reserves in areas where the bees are still happening so we don't have, you know, what happen, what's happening in the south where people are not even seeing stingless bees. doesn't happen in all of the Amazonia. And then, too, that there is a, a whole local effort and hopefully an international one to keep native bees and promote their, their keeping within local families as well. One of the things that I think I heard you mention, and it, it, it... I mean, it kind of goes back to that idea of, of, of local diversity and, and, and emphasizing, emphasizing on a local thing is one of the things that happened in the Amazon in the lockdown is it was very devastating because uh, obviously it's a very different lifestyle than someone being in a city where you say, okay, well, you're not going to work for six months and you can order your food online and have it delivered to your yeah. house. And in the Amazon, uh, Basically, people work, and if they don't make money that day, that they they don't eat. So to to lock yeah. down in such a harsh way was was very uh, detrimental to a lot of people. Uh, yeah. Cutting off food supply lines, isolating people, um, tourism for sure. But I think one of the things you mentioned uh, was this idea that maybe there was a resurgence in um, people cultivating bees again to be able to sell that honey because it was rather profitable. Do you is that something you see more that there, there's more of an interest in in people uh, cultivating bees or allowing bees to pollinate and maybe more of a, a an outside interest in that stingless bee honey because it is super medicinal? Um, do you see any increase in in, in that interest in, in some of the local communities? So through the work of Cesar Delgado, who's been on the field for years trying to promote. Uh, a more sustainable way of keeping the bees because the traditional way it's finding the beehive in the wild and then squeezing the pots to extract the honey 
um, which is how communities like indigenous communities have been doing it for years. But in a way, well, whenever you squeeze those pots, you're destroying it. So then those bees do get displaced and it takes a long time to remake those pots. And so Cesar's work was to create basically sustainable like wooden boxes where you take a beehive there and you can continuously extract the honey without destroying the, the, the pots, basically just using syringes, doing it in a more sterile way, in a more sustainable way. And that lasts the communities longer. With that and with some of the biological experiments that he's been able to conduct with his team so far, they have seen an increase of selling the local honey in the local farmers at the local level. So families have been able to sell their honey for a little bit more money so that they can actually put food in their tables in a slightly more sustainable way so it can last them, you know, they can see the profit throughout months and not just for one period or the other. We are slowly but surely seeing more families interested in that, in keeping bees. They just need the training. So we just need the people like in the field. And that's what we're trying to do actively now to encourage more families to keep them. Uh, one of the families we were the closest with is Heriberto Vela, who has went from having like 30 beehives to 40 to now like 50, a bit more, which is really exciting. Um, and I think when people learn the benefits, not just like, yes, you can actually use your honey as a source of income, especially when, when tourism gets halted or if that happens again, but also on the idea that they can help pollinate their crops around because a lot of these families grow the crops that they eat, right? Uh, especially when they realized, like you said, everything was shut down for a while, where the people, you cannot just order an Uber Eats when you're in the Amazon, right? It takes sometimes like 10 hours to be on a boat to even just get to the local markets. Um and so part of the work that we're trying to do also on the future is to use the scientific research that we're putting together to make, to basically try to get the native honey to be called honey. Right now, uh, in legal purposes, it cannot be labeled as honey for, you know, larger like commercial purposes. Um, so there is some sort of a limitation to the families. Uh, initiatives for like to to use this as a circular economy a like sustainable economy for themselves so we're hoping that the science can help inform and help push in a way to get so that the native honey can be called honey which is kind of wild right to think about but there's parameters and there's the legalities behind it and i and i think it is possible and that's when science can come in um and again it's for the people not imposing but like rather initiating a conversation what do we need how can we help you how can we make that happen yeah. Wonderful, Rosa. Well, what uh, do you have any plans for the future? Do you have any ideas of, of how you'd like your work to continue or to evolve or any upcoming projects you, you, you're interested in? So right now we're full speed, like trying to finish the Bowling River scientific, like this first work, there's going to be more to come by some of our other collaborators or our team members. Um, uh, but we're releasing a website that's going to go along with it. It's going to be an educational website in Spanish and English so people can explore along with that. So it's not just, it doesn't just stay at the scientific publication level, but it actually is brought to an interactive, very visually appealing type of uh, tool that can be used by anyone. Um, and we're excited to dive deeper in like the bee project with stingless bees and hopefully expand it beyond just Amazonian stingless bees so that we can have a comprehensive view of stingless bees in Peru in the different ecosystems that we have. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll see. I'm excited to spend much more time in Peru. Uh, starting next year, I, I do, I'm planning on, on a few different like long-term expeditions in the Amazon and, and putting all of this you know, to full speed as well and, and hopefully encouraging more people to do the science with us, um, but maintaining the, the storytelling. So, 
you know, I'll definitely continue to be engaged like through social media because I do see the benefits of sharing all of that. And I'm just hoping that more local people are going to get encouraged to do that with me. And if I can help in any way to to mentor in any way, I will continue to do that. I, I think that'll be a, a big goal for the future. You, you also are really interested in dance. What is your what is your interest in dance? Is it just purely pleasure, or you you also find interest in in like learning some of these uh, traditional uh, forms of dance? Yeah, I I I was a professional dancer for many years. I did competitions, taught, perform all over, even China. But that was a separate trip from the one I told you about, which was kind of wild. I did it all over Europe as well for a few years before starting the PhD. Um, I learned also a lot of traditional Peruvian dances growing up. And then I just focused more on like in Latin and Oriental. Uh, it was, a, to be honest, just more of a personal, like kind of expression for many years. I love the way that it built a community with women. Um, I would love to reintegrate it in the way of like communication. I, I don't know necessarily yet how I'm going to bring it back. I've continued to do it as a hobby because I just like, love dance i never can i can never really stand still um but i do see it as a source of connecting people and especially when we work with a lot of like female leaders in the field i feel like it's such a beautiful way to express femininity and i would like to keep that up um but we'll see i definitely i'm excited now that i'm done with the phd and all and all the studies and everything to dedicate a little bit more time in in seeing how that can be part of like the cultural approach and cultural like sharing that we do when we talk about science in the field. Um, so we'll see what kind of comes from there. Yeah, it's fascinating because uh, I, I just recently interviewed a woman who uh, works with Ayurveda, which is a, another traditional medicine system from India. Mm. And uh, she was saying one of these main uh, celebrations they have, it's, it's, a, it's a dance festival. Mm. Um, and, and a lot of people nowadays they they just dance and and, and it's pleasurable and there, there's a real value to that i mean there, there's an expression of the joy of life which is super important yeah. but they were she was also saying uh, on a deeper level it, it was actually the celebration of a change of seasons and and so it was in a way transitioning of certain foods certain lifestyles uh uh, certain medicines that you were taking and this dance was kind of moving from one phase to the next so yeah. there was actually this real kind of deeper knowledge there that a lot of people had forgotten but that that dance was actually an integral part of of, of the health and the well-being of a community and 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 I think it's fascinating because I think a lot of people may look at like science and dance as something very different but much like that idea of storytelling there's real wisdom and there's real power in all of these traditions and there, there's a guy who I have a lot of respect for uh, is his title is Amika. It's his name and his title. He comes from uh, um, this river called the Apaportis River in the Colombian Amazon in the Valpace region. And um, a group of people called the Tubu people. And they have a prophecy. And I think it's really beautiful. And it's something I think you spoke about really beautifully about this collaboration between science and indigenous cultures. And this prophecy, they call it the, the Dirdo Amasan. It's the children of the new dawn. And they say it's we're, we're entering the age where it's actually this time for these people to be able to, these children of the new dawn, to, to take the medicines of the four directions and to combine them and to actually create a new maloka, which is a, a, 
uh, a symbol for for the earth, for the universe. So to create this new earth that we're looking for, we do have to take the medicines of the four directions. And and I think that's really important too, because it, it really emphasizes that there is medicine in all four of the directions. There's medicines in the the, the 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 sphere of the northern medicine, the eastern medicine, the western medicine, the southern medicine, and that it's only by combining those, by collaborating, by having a symbiosis that that actually we do create a world that we all want to live in. So, I think it's really beautiful what you're doing, and um, and thank you for for sharing and and for doing your work. Um, if people are interested in in maybe learning more about you or your research or maybe getting in touch with you, is there a way that they can do that? Yeah, um, just to a, a final comment, thank you for saying all of that. I do think that the arts, and in my case, dance, but many other arts are a way to decentralize science and bring everyone a bit closer and just making things more approachable and, and access, you know, making it more of a, a conversation in our daily lives. We've definitely seen it in the educational efforts that we're, you know, doing in Peru and in the U.S., how it makes children less afraid of science or less like oh i'm not good enough for that i'm not smarter i'm not interested it, through dance and through arts in, arts in general it's just a much more it's a new way to reconnect with that and that's what we need for the future leaders so um so yeah yeah yes to everything you've said and i have a website uh, it's www.rosavespinosa just like my name.com i'm also on social media just by the same name um so people can just reach out i always love to chat and just share any chance and, and thank you really for the work that you do. I literally what I try to push is we need more more voices, we need more people in the field and then sharing all of that. So thank you for creating the space for that. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Rosa. All right, everyone, that's it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rosa. It was really a pleasure for me to sit down and talk to her. She's doing some really fascinating work in the Peruvian Amazon. And, um, yeah, I think it's really important that uh, more people like her are involved very much, as I mentioned at the end of the podcast. I, I think we're very much in a time of this collaboration and uh, synchronization and, and really building upon all of these different disciplines. So. I think she's doing really valuable work. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Um, as always, if you're able to support the podcast, that's a really big help to me to continue to bring on these guests. Uh, Patreon is a, a really good option. Um, you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. So that's a really big help to me to continue to allow me to, to produce, edit, uh, shoot these shows. To all the patrons, to all the people who support via that. Thank you very much. I, as, um, as always, I, I, I really appreciate your support. Um, if you're not able to do that, um, if you're watching this on YouTube, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, uh, those are really helpful ways with the algorithms and getting the show out to a bigger audience, leaving any uh, questions or comments in the comment section. And then if you're listening to this, uh, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or uh, whatever platform it is, following or subscribing to the show, leaving a starred rating and a short review is also a really big help. So I think that's it. Uh, my next guests coming up are um, Thomas Fryman, who's a really interesting guy. He's done a lot of work with uh, different plant medicines. He just finished his PhD at Columbia. Uh, also just came back from a Buiti Ibogan uh, initiation. So that should be a really fascinating conversation. 
And then uh, another woman, uh, her name is, uh, I believe, Bettina Fisher. She was also highly recommended to me. Um, she does a lot of work. Um, I don't even know exactly how to describe it, but um, kind of channeling work, uh, working with people one-on-one, um, but a, a very fascinating woman. I've listened to a couple interviews with her, and she's uh, she's very interesting. So she's going to be coming on the podcast as well. And um after that, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, so we'll see. But as always, I hope to bring on some really interesting guests. So thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this show and I will see you all in the next episode.